Hello, I'm Kerrigan Skelly with Pinpoint Evangelism. Today I'm going to talk to you about a very sensitive, difficult, and controversial topic. One that I have changed my mind on in the last year or so. If you've watched my video on divorce and remarriage on Matthew 5, it'll be 31 through 32, you'll see that my, um, what I believed then, what I was leaning towards very heavily at that point in time, is different from what I'm, what I'm going to tell you about in this video, my position now. Um, and if you watched that video, you, kn you knew that, you know that I, I had a, a doubt in my mind concerning my position. I admitted that within that video, and uh, there was good reason why in my mind. I believe the Lord led me to a different position on this situation now. And so I would encourage you to study this out carefully. And, um, you know, I've especially seen quite a bit of controversy within people who I consider brothers and sisters in Christ who are, believe in holiness, believe in you can be completely obedient to God in this life. You know, other positions theologically that are similar to mine, you know, they're not Calvinists, etc. And, you know, condemning people. And usually, typically, they'll, they'll quote um, either Matthew 5 or they'll quote Mark 10 or Romans 7. And they never get to Matthew 19. They never get to other passages, which I'm going to talk about today, which help to clarify what I believe Jesus was saying in Matthew 5 and in Mark 10. And Romans and what Paul said in Romans seven, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So today, let's let's go to Matthew nineteen. We're also going to go to the Old Testament a little bit, and we'll go to First Corinthians seven. Those will be our main passages. But let's read uh, Matthew nineteen, starting in verse one and going through verse twelve. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him and healed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away. He said to them, Moses because, of the heart, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives. From the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born thus from their mother's womb, there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So these Pharisees, they come to Jesus uh, trying to trip him up, and they're asking him this question about marriage. And what I want you to focus on in verse 3 that they're asking him this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, if we stop there, the people who believe what I used to believe, and believe opposite what I believe now, might have a point with this passage. But notice it says, for just any reason. That is their question. Can a man divorce his wife for just any reason? And Jesus' answer is that, um, and from the beginning, this was not so. 
uh, that man was not to divorce his wife, that from the beginning they are to become one flesh, and what God has joined together, let not man separate. So, and then it asks a question in verse 7, why uh, did Moses uh, command to give a divorce certificate? Now, keep in mind, Jesus, once again, is responding to their divorce, his divorcing a man divorcing his wife for just any reason. And that's why he responded with verse 4, 5, 6, what he said, with the two had been joined together, not man separate. So, if a man divorces his wife for just any reason, that would qualify in Jesus' eyes, according to verse 6, as man separating what God has joined together. But that statement, that last uh, sentence in verse 6, does not apply to all divorces of all time. Okay, and we'll see that here in a few minutes. And they ask him in verse 7, once again, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Now, did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away for just any reason? First of all, Moses didn't command it, as Jesus clarifies in verse 8. Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wife, but from the beginning it was not so. So, hardness of heart, sin in the world. Because of sin in the world, Moses, God, through Moses, because this is, this is a law we find in Deuteronomy 24, we'll get to that here in a minute, Moses permitted the Israelites, the Israelite husbands, to divorce their wives. But it wasn't just for any reason, as we'll see here in a second when we go to Deuteronomy 24. But let's, let's look at the original plan uh, that God had for marriage at the beginning. Because, you know, and, and Matthew 19 says, from the beginning it was not so, uh, man shall leave his, his, his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and two should become one flesh. So let's see, let's go back to the beginning and see the original reason for marriage. Let's go to uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in his place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall be joined to his, shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So that's what you, you see Jesus saying this is verse 24. That's what he's quoting in Matthew 19. But go back to verse 18. Let's see what the original purpose was here. God said it's not good for man to be alone. So the situation, the problem that God is remedying here, that he's fixing, is man's loneliness. And when God brought all the animals before him, it says at the end of verse 20, but for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. So, you know, what we consider the closest to human beings would be like gorillas or apes. You know, they were not a helper comparable to Adam. They were not fit for him to be a helper, to be a mate. So it's not good for man to be alone. So when it came to the original purpose for marriage, the original purpose for marriage was not even reproduction. Uh, it was not sexual gratification. 
It was companionship and to remedy loneliness. And so when we consider our uh, doctrine on divorce and marriage and what the Bible says, we must always keep this in mind. This original situation and what it's doing and that it's rem the original purpose of marriage is to remedy loneliness. Now as a result of sin, um, because there was sin in the Garden of Eden, Eve sinned first and then Adam, there's lots of things to change. And this is going back to the statement that Jesus made in Matthew 19, that from the beginning it was not so. Okay, so from the beginning it was not so. It's referring to them divorcing their wives, as they asked Jesus the question, and he responded to the, the, the point of them divorcing you for just any reason. But responding to the point of divorce, period, he's saying from the beginning it was not so. That's right, it wasn't that way from the beginning. From the beginning, um, there was no reason for, divor for divorce. Okay, because sin was not in the world. There was no hardness of the heart that God needed to permit divorce later on down the road because of sin. And so, but there's lots of other things that weren't that way from the beginning either. We know that divorce wasn't that way from the beginning, uh, but we also know that in the original situation that uh, Adam wasn't lord over his wife or head over his wife in the same way that men are to be heads over their wives today. Uh, in fact, we see that in Genesis 3.16. After the fall of Adam and Eve, temptation of the serpent, God's divvying out the punishments to each person involved. And he says to the woman in Genesis 3.16, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So part of her punishment, part of Eve's punishment, part of every woman's punishment, because of what Eve did, is that the order of things now will be that the man will rule over the wife. Now, it doesn't mean he's ruling over with a thumb on her head, but he's leading her, he's guiding her. There's no equality in leadership when it comes to the marriage. Whereas before, and since this is a punishment, there must have been that way before. And we see um, the Eve sitting in the garden from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. This is one of the reasons why... Um, that women must learn in silence. Uh, they can't teach a man the things of God. And why she can't have authority over a man, which means she can't be a pastor or an elder or overseer or a shepherd or in, in the church of God. One of the reasons why these things are so now is because of Eve's sin. That's what 1 Timothy 2, 11-14 says. So, so in the beginning, before the hardness of the heart, before sin came into the world, um, we know that there were lots of things that were different. One is that there was no divorce. Two is that the authority structure in the marriage changed. Uh, three, there was no physical death. Uh, we see this in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 22 to 24. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now as he put out his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and placed, he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword was turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, because of Adam and Eve's sin, they were kicked out of the garden, along with their whole, all their posterity were kicked out of the garden, and no longer had access to the tree of life, which if they ate of it, they could have lived forever. But now they're kicked out of the garden, now they're going to die physically. And because they die physically, and them and all their posterity are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and we know now it's not around anymore because the flood wiped it out. Okay, 
Uh, but the point being that they're going to die physically now. So from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, uh, there was no divorce. From the beginning, there was no um, husband ruling over the wife, as it is now. And from the beginning, there was no physical death. So, you know, even, you know, the Bible says in Romans 7 and in, in Matthew 5 and in Mark 10 and in 1 Corinthians 7 that if the one of the spouses die in the marriage, that the, that the person is free to remarry no matter what the situation was before that person died. And so even that is not ideal. Even that was not from the beginning. So when a widow or a widower uh, gets remarried, even that is not God's ideal plan. So there's lots of things that changed because of sin. Um, so both partners in the marriage covenant will eventually die. And we know in other passages in Matthew that Jesus when was questioned again by the Pharisees that uh, about who you're going to be married to in the, in the kingdom, that there is no marrying or giving a marriage in the kingdom. So there's no marriage at all then. And so that wasn't God's ideal either. That wasn't the original situation. And so there are several things that the hardness of the heart or sin cause change about when it comes to marriage. One, the union would eventually end, be broken through death. Uh, and, and once again, remarry widows is not even the ideal. Uh, the husband would now rule over the wife. And three, divorce and remarriage, while the first spouse was still alive, was allowed by God. That's what it says in Matthew 19, that Moses permitted the divorce because of the hardness of heart. Because of each person's personal sin. Because of potential personal sin. I mean, for all you know, if you're married right now and you're happily married to your wife or your husband and you're both Christians living for God on fire for God, for all you know, one of you could fall away from the faith and commit adultery to each other. And that's not ideal. But because of those things, because of the hardness of heart in this world, God permits divorce and therefore permits remarriage as well. Let's go to Deuteronomy 24. And we're going to see what the Old Testament says about divorce and remarriage. And I assert to you, that this hasn't changed. Because what Jesus says in Matthew 19 is basically the same exact thing that Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 says. So let's read what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. After her latter husband dies, who took her as his wife. Then her former husband, who divorced her, must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you should not bring sin to land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So we see here that um, in the Old Testament, this is what Jesus is referring to, about Moses permitting divorce, that Divorce is permitted. And here, here is the steps to divorce between two Jewish people. One, the husband finds uncleanness in his wife. Now, the Hebrew word there uh, means nakedness of a thing. It means indecency. It means uncovering of the genitals. And so, basically, a general sexual immorality is what it's saying here. And so what we should expect to find in the New Testament version of this in Matthew 19, where Jesus is talking about this exception, we should find a word in the Greek 
that gives it's a general term for sexual morality. So we should find. So we'll, we'll get to that here in a minute. So the the husband finds uncleanness in his wife, some kind of sexual uh, deviancy in his wife. He writes her a certificate of divorce outlining the reasons for the divorce. He gives a certificate to his wife, and then he physically separates from her. He sends her out of the house. And notice here, as it says in uh, verses 2 through 4, that if she becomes another man's wife, and if that man dies or that man finds uncleanness in her too and he divorces her, that she's not allowed to go back to the first woman who is considered an abomination to the Lord. The ironic thing about this statement is that people who believe what I used to believe when I talked to Matthew 5, that if you have divorced your first spouse, uh, for whatever the reason may be, and you go on to remarry someone else while that first spouse is still alive, that you are in sin right now, no matter what the first reason was for divorce. Okay, If you remarried, you're now in perpetual, continual adultery, and the only way to repent is to divorce your second spouse and go back to your first spouse or to stay single. But Deuteronomy 24 makes it clear that if you divorce, or if you are divorced from your second spouse, or your second spouse dies, and you go back to your first spouse, that it's an abomination to the Lord. I mean, isn't that ironic? I'd like to see someone who believes in no divorce and remarriage for the Christian, except for the death of the first spouse, I'd like to see them deal with this scripture, because this scripture has not passed away. This is almost exactly the same thing Jesus is giving in Matthew 19. And so, once again, husband finds the cleanest of his wife, writes to her divorce, outlining the reasons for it, gives to the wife, and physically separates from her. Okay, so remarriage, I want you to see here, remarriage is allowed in Deuteronomy 24, and the first marriage in God's eyes is dissolved. It is done. It is finished. You're not allowed to go back to that spouse. Okay, so no remarrying the former spouse and, and after she remarries someone else. So these people, this first couple in this Deuteronomy 24 passage, while the former spouse is still alive, because otherwise you couldn't go back to them, they are divorced in God's eyes. Okay? So what Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 is referring to is not, is not going to qualify uh, along the lines of what Jesus said in Matthew 19. That what God has joined together, let not man separate. This is not man separating. This is God separating. God has dissolved this, this marriage in Deuteronomy 24, 1, and is allowing both parties, both the innocent and the guilty party, to remarry. Okay, so they're both allowed to remarry. So let's go back to Matthew 19 and uh, talk about this some more here. And so we finished up in verse 8 where it says, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. We saw that death wasn't from the beginning, um, that the man ruling over his wife wasn't from the beginning. So the marriage covenant being broken at all, whether through divorce or through uh, one spouse dying or both spouses dying, none of that was ideal. None of that was from the beginning. Okay? But when it says at the end of verse 6, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That is not for all divorce. I'm not talking about all divorces. referring to what they said at the end of verse 3. It's not lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason. That's what Jesus is responding to. But from the beginning it was not so. Okay? So, Moses permitted, and God still permits, as we see in verse 9. 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except, except for sexual morality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So people will take the last part of this, whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. But the whole point of this verse 9 is that the person is remarrying. And the whole reason why they're allowed to remarry in God's eyes, the exception to the rules. Not the, it's not an exception to get divorced. It's an exception to get remarried because divorcing someone for a reason besides sexual morality wouldn't make you an adulterer. You have to remarry someone else or have, have sex with someone else to be considered an adulterer in God's eyes. But um, it's referring to someone who is divorcing and remarrying. And so this exception given here in verse 9 except for sex morality, is for divorcing and remarrying, not just divorcing, divorcing and remarrying. And so, but the word here for sex morality is porneia. And porneia, remember what I said back in Deuteronomy 24, that we should find a word here that should be a general word for sex morality, for uncleanness, uh, from the Greek. It's what we found in the Hebrew word. It means uncleanness, indecency of a thing, exposing your, your genital area. That's what it meant, the Hebrew word may, means. And what we see here, and uh, in the New Testament, the Greek word is porneia. And porneia is, is typically translated as fornication, uh, which means just sexual morality in general. It doesn't just mean the act of intercourse between two people who are unmarried. Obviously it can mean someone who is married, uh, in God's eyes, can commit fornication. And so, Sex and morality, there's two definitions given of porneia in my Greek lexicon. One is sexual morality, unlawful sexual intercourse. And number two is immorality of a transcendent nature or spiritual fornication. And um, if you were to go, I'll give you, just give you some scripture references here. I'm not going to go through each one, but I'll let you look it up for yourself. Um, in the New Testament, you see porneia used with the second definition I'm sure everyone understands the first definition. We know that's that's most most prevalent definition used in the scriptures for porneia, which is sexual morality. But the second definition, immorality of a transcendent nature, which is spiritual fornication. You see this in Revelation 14.8. You see it in Revelation 17, verses 2 and 4. You see it in Revelation 18.3. And you see it in Revelation 19.2. So fornication is, I mean, pornea doesn't always mean sexual morality in a natural sense. It can mean spiritual fornication, okay? Now, the Old Testament, there's a Greek version of the Old Testament called Septuagint. And you'll see the word pornea used in this second definition's uh, sense as well in the Old Testament. Leviticus 17.7, um, Leviticus chapter 20, verses 5 through 6. Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 16, Judges 2.17, Judges 8.33, 2 Chronicles 21 verses 11 and 13, and in Hosea 1.2 you see it used in both senses there, the word porneia, used in two different ways, the first defin definition and the second definition, and Hosea 4.12-13. So those are some examples a porneia means something besides sexual morality in the natural sense where you're having sex with someone else, or intercourse with somebody else, or some kind of sexual activity with someone else. It can mean a spiritual fornication or spiritual immorality as well. 
And so when Jesus gives this here, and uh, the exception to the rule in Matthew 19, 9, I don't believe it just means sexual immorality. I think that the, the translator of my New King James Version Bible were being a little narrow in their uh, de defining here. And so it could possibly also mean, let's say, if, if I was married to, to someone, or let's say you were married to someone that uh, went off into witchcraft and devil worship, uh, I would think that's grounds for divorce and remarriage. Uh, because you shouldn't be uh, uniting yourself as a person sexually, that's for sure. Okay, so let's go to, um, the next passage I want to go to is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's another important passage here. And when we go there, you'll see uh, verses 11 and 12 of Matthew 19 tied in there at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians 7. And before we start in 1 Corinthians 7, I just want to touch on these passages where, like Romans 7, the beginning of Romans 7, and Matthew uh, 5, uh, 31, 32, and then Mark 10. There's no exception clause given in those cases. But just because there's no exception clause given in those passages does not mean we dismiss the exception clause given in Matthew 19.9. We don't throw it out of the Bible. So you've got to deal with that. And in those passages, in, in Romans 7, the topic is not divorce or marriage. The topic is the law and, and for how long it has power over someone, as long as they live. Um, and uh, in Mark 10... It's the same conversation that we see in Matthew 19. And so when you see Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the Synoptic Gospels, they often have the same situations, the same stories told from different people's perspectives. You often find details in some that you'll find in others. You have to harmonize them. You have to combine the two passages. And, of course, there's no contradictions in God's Word. And so you have to understand them in light of each other. And so if you have two passages... Uh, in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, no matter what the passages are talking about, and one gives more information to, than the other, you don't take the one with the less information and make it the rule. You take the one with the most information, which gives you the, 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 the right uh, understanding of a certain doctrine. And so for you to take just Mark 10 or just Matthew 5 and make it the rule and dismiss verse 9 of Matthew 19 makes no sense. In Romans 7, the whole, the whole point of Romans 7, the beginning of Romans 7, has nothing to do with divorce and remarriage, and it doesn't even mention the exception clause there. It's simply talking about the law and how long the law has power over someone, as long as they live. Okay, so let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll see here a lot of the things that Paul says here are going to relate back to what Jesus said in Matthew 19. And some of it will be new because he's dealing with different situations, because Jesus, all he dealt with, uh, he wasn't dealing with unbelievers. He was dealing with the Jewish, Jewish nation. In fact, he said about himself that he had, had was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And it wasn't until after he, right before he ascended to the Father, that he told the apostles, you will be my witness in Jerusalem today as Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that they weren't to do that until they received power from on high on the day of Pentecost. And so, um, Jesus didn't deal with unbelievers in the same sense that Paul was dealing with them, with the Gentiles. These people are coming out of paganism. Uh, they're coming out of some pretty bad immorality. Whereas in, Ju in, Ju in Judaism, if you are caught in adultery, or caught in some kind of sin like that, some grievous sin, you are stoned to death. You didn't last very long. But in the pagan culture, in the Greek culture, the Roman culture, if you were committing sin, it was no big deal. 
So you were lasting. So Paul was dealing with these things, these things that Jesus didn't deal with, that Jesus didn't speak on. So he, he uh, gives his point of view under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. We'll stop right there. We see in verse 1, they wrote to him about some things. Okay, What those questions were, I don't know. We can suppose what they might be by what the answers he's giving here. But we don't know exactly what those questions were. But he said it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And see, he's talking about being celibate here. It is good not, it's good to be celibate. It's good not to be married. And he'll give some good reasons why later on in, the thir in uh, verses uh, 32 through 35. He'll give some good reasons why. Now, he's celibate himself. He's not married. I don't know if he was at one point in time or not. There's some people who think he was. I don't think the scriptures explicitly say that. But it's good for a man not to touch a woman. So it's good for a man to be celibate. That's exactly what Jesus talked about in Matthew 19. He said, all cannot accept this as saying, but only those to whom it has been given. So being a eunuch for God, or being celibate for God, whether a man made you that way physically, uh, whether you've made yourself that way spiritually, or whether you were born from the womb that way, whether that means you were called that way, you were born with some kind of sexual deformity, the fact is, it's good for a man. Not to touch a woman. That's a good thing. Okay, so you shouldn't, if you're out there and you're not married, you shouldn't assume you're meant to be married. Okay? Now, verse 2, Nevertheless, because of sexual morality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. So, if you have a problem with sexual morality, if you're tempted by that, and you think you're going to fall into that, um, the answer is not masturbation. The answer is not looking at pornography or Playboy magazines. That's sin. The answer for sexual morality uh, there was lots of answers to it. One is, one is to control your eyes, control what's put through your ears and through your eyes, control what's in the thoughts in your mind. But if you if you are burning, as I'm about to say here in a second, the answer is marriage. You know, husband and wife are, are supposed to have sex. That is the answer to sex and morality. Let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. That is the answer to sex and morality. Now I'm going to tell you this: if you have a problem with lust because you're looking at pornography. Because you're not controlling what your eyes look at and what's going in your ears. Like you're watching TV all the time and commercials and bad movies and sports with the cheerleaders and all this nonsense on there. That's going to be your problem. And your problem will not be solved by getting married. And Paul's not addressing that. He's addressing this issue of this natural desire someone has, sexual desire they have, is given to them by God. The, the solution to that problem is for someone to get married. Okay? Verse 3. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, to her. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So you see here, in marriage, that you, as a husband and wife, this is mostly for wives, because the wives, I think, have the problem more than husbands do, you're the render the affection due to your husband. You're not to play these games that if you don't do what I want, I'm not going to give you sex. That's nonsense. Okay? You're going to cause your husband to stumble. And husband, if you're doing this, you have the same problem. You're going to render the affection due to your wife. Your body, husband, does not belong to you, but to your wife. And your body, wife, does not belong to you, but to your husband. You're one flesh, and you belong to each other. It goes on to say, in verse 5, Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time. They may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so... There's only one good reason 
for not regularly having sex for a period of time. Number one, both parties must consent to it. Husband and wife must consent to it. If only the wife consents to it, guess what? Wife, you need to do, render the affection due to your husband. If only the husband says no, um, husband, too bad. You need to render the affection due to your wife. Your body does not belong to you. And if you're going to consent for a time, you must be giving yourself, especially to prayer and fasting, more than you normally would because the thing that you've been giving your body day in and day out, um, or at least multiple times weekly and week out, you're giving your body these things that it needs because of the sexual desires, normal sexual desires that God has given you. You're getting it from your wife, husband, husband, uh, wife, you're getting it from your husband. These natural things are being fulfilled. If you're going to take off of those things, you should give yourself the prayer and fasting, lest you be tempted and fall back into sin. And, I, you know, I've experienced this many times. When I go away on a trip, say, to Daytona Beach, Florida, for spring break to preach, um, I'm away from my wife for about a week. And while I'm away from my wife for about a week, um, there's a chance I could be tempted, especially when there's all these bikini-clad women around me. But as I give myself the prayer and fasting, especially more than normal, because I'm not around my wife, I'll take care of her. I'm not around my children, I'll take care of them. I'm not doing work as much as I usually am in graphic design. And so I'm giving more time to prayer and fasting than usual, and I'm doing that consciously, not just because I have more time, because I know if I don't, I'm going to stumble into sin. But I, I can uh, confidently say to you that in, the, I think, four years straight that we went there, we didn't go this past year, but the four years before that, that we went, I haven't lusted a woman once out of all four trips at about a week long each because I'm giving myself to prayer and fasting. And so we can do all things through Christ to strengthen this. But celibacy is okay even in marriage, but it must be consent by both parties, and he must give himself, especially to fasting and prayer, because of a lack of self-control. And he says in, uh, in verse 6, but I say this as a concession, as a commandment. And, and when he's saying that in verse 6, he's not saying as the prayer and fasting, the concession, the commandment. He's saying um, depriving each other for a time. Celibacy in marriage. It's not a commandment to be celibate in marriage. He's not commanding that. It's a concession. And it must meet the qualifications he gives in verse 5. He says in verse 7, For I wish that all men were even as myself, which he was single, he was celibate, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that manner. That's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 11 and 12. He says in verse 11, All cannot accept the saying, but only those to whom it has been given. At the end of verse 12, he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. And so, Paul is, is simply affirming what Jesus already said uh, years before that, that. These teachings that he was well aware of. Um, that is, not everyone, ha he wishes everyone were like him. And we'll see once again later in the verses, uh, 30 verses, uh, why. But um, it's not for everyone. Each person has their own gift. Some are meant to be married, some are not meant to be married. You have to figure this out. You have to get on your knees before God, pray and fast, and figure it out for yourself. Verse 8. Now I say to the unmarried and to the widows, who are unmarried by death, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. And so he's, he's admonishing them. You should remain single just as I am. It's good for you if you do that. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. You know why it's better to marry than to burn with passion? Because you might fall into sin, and then you'll go to hell. And Paul doesn't want you to go to hell. God doesn't want you to go to hell. I don't want you to go to hell. It's better for you. I mean, it's, it's, 
the best situation as far as your spiritual uh, life is concerned, as far as growing closer to God is concerned, we'll see that once again here in a little bit, is that you have no earthly distraction, but you can completely focus on God and not have any distractions by your wife or husband or children. Um, and then I'm not saying your distractions in the bad sense. I love my wife, I love my children, I wouldn't give up for, give them up for anything. But um, it's the fact of the matter is, when I was single, I had more time to pray. When I was single, I had more time to read the Word of God. When I was single, I had more time to preach. And so, you single guys, single girls out there, you're going to get more an account for your time than us married people will. All right, let's read on. So if you burn, it's good for you to remain as widows or unmarried, but if you burn, marry. Marry, marry, marry. That, once again, that is the solution, as it says in verse 2, to sexual morality or to lust, is to marry. Okay, verse 10. Now to the married I command, yet not I with the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now people who believe what I used to believe will jump all over these two verses and take it out of context and say, look, look, look. The exception clause in Matthew 19.9 is not mentioned here. And the assumption here, because Paul is commanding both people in the marriage what to do is that both of them are Christians. And if two people are Christians and there is no fornication, there is no pornea, there's no sexual morality involved, then you're not to divorce. You know, people divorce over all kinds of things these days. They divorce over, you know, whether someone should squeeze a toothpaste up or roll a toothpaste up. They divorce over things like, uh, you know, which side the toilet paper should go down. You know, silly things over arguments, over fights, over money, over, you know, uh, all different kinds of stupid things people get divorced over, okay? And um, what Paul is saying here is that if, if, if you two are both Christians, you're not to divorce, you can be separated for a time, but the goal of separation is reconciliation. Verse 12. But to the rest, I, not the Lord... Now what? Now let's stop right there. Paul, what Paul is about to say does not mean it's not authoritative because he says, uh, "I, not the Lord." He's saying that because Jesus didn't discuss these things that he's about to discuss uh, a marriage between a a believer and an unbeliever. Jesus didn't discuss these things. Jesus discussed marriage between a believer and a believer. And so, there's marriage between a believer and a believer, and there's nothing involved with the exception clause in Matthew nineteen nine. They're not to divorce. They can be separated for a time, but the goal is reconciliation. Okay? Now verse 12. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to, let, to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and I believe in, I believe in wife sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would, become, would be unclean, but now they are holy. Okay, so verses 12 through 14 is referring to a marriage of a husband and wife. One spouse is a Christian, a believer. And one spouse, one spouse is an unbeliever or a non-Christian. And if the unbeliever or non-Christian is willing to dwell and under the sanctifying influence of the believer, whether the believer is a husband or the believer is a wife, if they're willing to live in that, then the believer is not to divorce the unbelieving spouse. Because, you know, we, we, we're trying, 
we, we have to try to figure out what questions they're they're asking Paul here. And I would assume the question next here is, you know, people were concerned as a believer married to an unbeliever that they had children, their children would be unclean, and they would be unclean for sleeping with their husband or wife who was not a believer. And Paul is saying, listen, that's not true. That's not true. And not only that, you have a sanctifying influence over your children and over your spouse because you're in their lives and they're willing to hear what you have to say and receive from you. Verse 15. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So if an unbeliever wants to leave, you let the unbeliever leave. You're not in bondage. You're allowed to be divorced in the situation. Now we know it's talking about divorce. Why? Because the part right before us in verses 12 through 14, where it's telling them to stay with the unbeliever, is referring to what? Divorce. So he's talking about the same topic in verse uh, 15. Verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? and how, Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And this goes two directions here, this verse. One, don't depart from the unbelieving spouse who wants to stay with you because your sanctifying influence may save them. It may save them. So don't divorce them. <laughs> Two, if the unbeliever wants to leave and they want to divorce you, they're involved in pornea in some way, let them leave. So how do you know if you're going to save them? Why ruin your life and your children's lives because of this person who doesn't want to be with you in the first place? How do you know if you're going to save them or not? You don't know. And so these are the guidelines Paul is giving to an unbeliever married to a believer. Now, of course, the unbeliever should have become an, a believer. I mean, the, the believer should have become a believer since their marriage. There should never be a case, believer, that you're marrying an unbeliever. Never. You shouldn't even think about it. You shouldn't even date. You shouldn't even consider or pray about marrying someone who is an unbeliever. If you're a believer, you're only to marry a believer. So this believer in this situation obviously became a believer after they were already married. So that's what he's addressing here. <laughs> Verse 17. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain all the churches. And so we see here that each one is given a different calling. Maybe you're called to be married to an unbeliever and to stay with them. Maybe you're called to be separated from an unbeliever. Um, each person is given a different gift and you need to walk in the situation that God has allowed you to walk in, that God has called you to. So whatever situation you're in when you're called, that's the situation you should walk in. Uh, verse 18. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become circumcised. <laughs> circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. So we see in verse 17, verse 20, and verse 24, that whatever situation you were in when you were called, in other words, whatever situation you were in when you became a Christian, do not do anything hasty. The Lord can use you right where you are. If when you were called by God, you were already divorced and remarried, 
remain in that state, whether your spouse is an unbeliever or a believer, remain in that state, which you were called. If you were called while you were uh, single, remain in that state. If you were called while you're a widow, remain in that state. If you were called single after you'd gotten divorced, remain in that state. If you were called and you had been uh, divorced, remarried three or four times, remain in that state to which you were called. God can use you where you are. Uh, verse 25. <clears throat> now concerning virgins, I have no command from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. Once again, he has no commandment directly from Jesus as far as in his what he's taught while he was alive on earth. The same thing he talked about in uh, verse 10. So he's not saying that what he's about to say is not authoritative. Not saying that. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I suppose that, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress that is good for a man to remain as he is. Once again, it's saying, just like verse 17, 20, and 24, that it's good for a believer to remain as they are. But he's giving a different reason this time. It's not because God can use you right where you are, as he gave before. It's because of the present distress. They were undergoing great persecution for being Christians. And he's saying because of the present distress... If you are a virgin, if you are single, you've never been married now, you should remain as you are because of the present distress. It's better off that you don't marry. And verse 27 goes on to say, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. In other words, do not seek to be divorced, separated, or released from the marriage. Are you loose from a wife? In other words, you've been married before. Do not seek a wife. Now that loosed, doesn't give the reason for being loose, but it could have been loosed by divorce. It could be loosed by the spouse dying. Um, but otherwise, they're loose. It says, do not seek a wife. But I guess in verse 28, but even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. So the first part of verse 28, even if you do marry, you have not sinned. Who's that referring to? The second group in verse 27. Are you loose from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Because it goes on to say in verse 20, the second half, if a virgin marries, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. That's referring to the first group. In verse 26, okay? So we see, if you decide to marry, he's giving you advice saying, if if you are loose from a wife, or if you're a virgin, or if you're, not, if you're bound to a wife, do not seek to change your situation because of the present distress. Not just because God can use you right where you are, but because of the present distress as well. The end of verse 28 says, Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, I would spare you. So he's saying if you get married, because of the present distress, uh, you will have trouble that he would he would like to spare you this trouble. And just think about that practically speaking. <clears throat> if there's persecution all around you, what's easier? Being married or being not married? It's easier to be not married. So if you're not married, all you're concerned about if there's persecution around you is yourself. You're not concerned with with children, you're not concerned with your spouse. All you have to be concerned about is yourself. You have no, you have no one else to take care of. You're just yourself to take care of. And so it's much easier. And if you're married, do not seek to be loose because getting a divorce in the middle of persecution is going to be very difficult as well. And so Paul is using, giving practical advice here. <clears throat> Verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. So from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. 
and those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares about the things of the cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. So we, we, we get to start start right here and giving why he's giving this advice in, when it comes to persecution and why you should remain single or if you're married, you should remain married. But he says at the beginning of verse 29 here, we'll touch on this real quick, it says that for now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Well, I think that's referring back to what it says in verse 5, that you should uh, deprive one another with consent for a time and to give yourself the fasting and prayer because to have children during this time would be very difficult. In fact, let's just go to Matthew 24 for a second here. <clears throat> now, this is talking about the end times in Matthew 24, which is a time when there's going to be great persecution. <clears throat> and it says in the, uh, Matthew 24 and verse 19, uh, this is right after the midway point of the seven-year tribulation at the end, it says, But woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing babies in those days. And one of the reasons for a godly marriage is to produce godly offspring. And um, you should be as though you had no wife because if you bring forth offspring during this time, it would be very difficult for your wife to escape persecution, being pregnant. Or if she gives birth during persecution, it would be very difficult to nurse that child because she'll have a hard time finding food for herself. If she can't find food for herself, she can't feed the baby. And they didn't have formula back then. And uh, you can't feed the baby solid food. And so it makes things very difficult. And so Paul would spare them some trouble in the flesh, as said at the end of verse 28. In verse 32, once again, But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. So he's reaffirming once again, he's not putting a leash on them to say they can't be married, or that they uh, can't be remarried, or married for the first time. He's simply saying that um, he would... Serve to have you serve the Lord without distraction and save you trouble, spare you trouble that you would have in the flesh because of the present distress that they were going through. And so, as you see, this there's a distraction when you're married, it's just the way it is. It's not a bad thing to be married, it's not you're not a less spiritual person to be married, but practically speaking, you have less time for the Lord and the things of the Lord if, if you're married and have children, as long as you're raising them properly. That is, there's Many people who are looked up to as men of God and women of God who have not raised their family properly. And uh, we need to raise our families properly. <laughs> and this is in verse 36. But if a man thinks he is behaving improperly towards his virgin, she's past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. And so, if a virgin wants to get married, and she's past the age of youth, and she wishes to marry, it's okay for her to marry. It's not sin for her to marry, even in persecution. It's not a sin to be pregnant or have children or nurse in the midst of persecution. Not at all. But Paul would have saved them some flesh and have them serve the Lord without distraction. Save them some trouble in the flesh. Verse 37, Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, 
having no necessity, best power over his own will. In other words, he's been given that uh, he's not burning with lust. He has this gift of celibacy, this gift of being a eunuch for the Lord. He says, uh, has power over his own will and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So that he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives. If her husband dies, she has liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So, once again, verse 39 is not referring to the exception clause. It's referring to two believers. And we know for sure, with no divorce involved, that if your spouse dies, you are free to remarry. Period. That's a definite freedom to remarriage. Once again, it wasn't that way in the beginning. That's not the way God created marriage for. But if someone does remarry, they're only to marry in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, which is single, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. So, just to summarize uh, 1 Corinthians 7, we see in verses 1 through 9, celibacy is good, but only for those who are unmarried and can handle it without sinning, i.e. they have the gift of God that Matthew 19 talks about. And celibacy is good for the married, only for a time, and to commit themselves to prayer and fasting. So that's what verses 1 through 9 are talking about. Verses 10 and 11 are about two believers who are married, and they are not to divorce. If there's ever a departure or separation for a time, it is to be with the goal of reconciliation. There's no mention of the exception clause or permission clause from Matthew 19, 7 through 9. And it doesn't mean that if a believer were to involve himself in porneia, that this verse, these verses in verse 10 and 11, are forbidding such people from getting a divorce and remarrying. Verses 12 through 16 is referring to a believer married to an unbeliever. A believer not to divorce an unbeliever who is willing to stay under the sanctifying influence of the believer. If the unbeliever wants to depart, let him or her. Stay with them, you might save them. Let them go, you don't know if you'll save them at all. That they'll ever be saved. Verses 17 through 24 is, is referring to remaining in the state you were in when you were called. Don't do anything hasty. The Lord can use you right where you are. And you see that in verses 17, 20, and 24. And verse 25 through 40, not to marry. There is a present distress in verse 26. There is He would spare them some trouble in verse 28. There is, the time is short in verse 29. That they would serve the Lord without distraction in verse 35. And they would be happier if they don't marry in Paul's judgment in verse 40. And Paul would not have them marry again or for the first time because of these things. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. That's for virgins, that's for widows, and that's for the divorced as well. But they must marry in the Lord and realize that it is until death when you marry. That's what it must be. And so I, I think the scriptures are pretty clear on this. And one of the problems I have with the position I used to hold, and that many people I know hold today, besides the fact that I believe it's unbiblical, is this, is that they're putting this ungodly, unbiblical pressure upon someone who's been divorced, uh, even if it is for fornication, or even if it's not for fornication. They're telling them that they cannot be remarried unless their former spouse, their first spouse dies. And they're putting this pressure on them, and they may not have the gift of celibacy. 
They may not have this gift that God's given them, that God gives some, to not burn with lust. And not only that, they may be lonely, just like Adam was lonely. It may not be a gift that God has given them. And so, when you tell a believer these things, that they can't remarry because their first spouse is still alive, you're telling them they have to deal with lust and burn with lust and burn with passion and burn with the sexual desire that God's given them and be lonely the rest of their lives. And you know what it could cause them to do, friends? It could cause them to apostatize. It could cause them to depart from the faith because you're putting this pressure on them because you're not using the whole counsel of God concerning this topic from the scriptures and you're putting this pressure on them not to get married. Or worse yet, you're telling them to divorce their current spouse, whether it's a second, third, or fourth, and go back to their first spouse, which the Bible explicitly says is an abomination to God. And so you have a potential of causing someone to fall away from the faith and depart from the faith. And you also are um, <coughs> causing people to potentially call, uh, commit abomination in God's eyes. And so I would really encourage you, friends, to seek these things out, understand these things for yourself, read the scriptures for yourself on these issues, and understand the whole counsel of God concerning these things. You must understand the whole counsel of God. Now, what I'm not saying, just to clarify, is that you can get divorced for any reason. It must qualify as pornea. Each situation might be dealt with situation by situation. As a pastor, if a wife came to me and said her husband was beating her physically and he wasn't willing to stop, I would tell her to leave him and be separated from him at least for a time. And this is someone who's calling himself a believer. They're obviously not a believer, but they're calling themselves a believer. And that if the person didn't repent, that they would divorce them permanently. And I wouldn't tell this person they couldn't remarry. I wouldn't tell them that. I wouldn't dare tell them that. Um, if someone has been divorced and remarried three times, all while they're an unbeliever, and it wasn't for pornea, it was for dumb reasons, and now they became a Christian, and they meet a, a woman who's a Christian, I wouldn't tell them they couldn't marry that person. I wouldn't tell them that. Because the Bible says, and whatever, the second, first Corinthians 7 says, Paul's dealing with pagans now, not just Jewish people who are believers, pagans, to remain in the state you're in, this is advice because God can use you where you are, but if you marry, you have not sinned. And so, I think mercy needs to triumph, uh, needs to triumph here over this situation. And you take a situation by situation, keeping in mind that their original reason for marriage is to remedy loneliness, and that if someone is burning with lust, they're to be married. And um, so we take it situation by situation. But for someone to make a blanket statement that if you've been divorced for whatever the reason is, and your first spouse is still alive, you can't remarry, is to cause great trouble for that person. Great trouble. And maybe even great trouble for their current spouse if you tell them to divorce them. Or you could cause trouble for their first spouse's current spouse if they decide to divorce their current spouse and go back to their first spouse. And so this, the teaching that I used to hold to can cause great problems. And, uh, but that's beside the point because it's unbiblical. It's unbiblical. So friends, please seek this out. Understand this. 
Understand what Matthew 19 says, 1 Corinthians 7, Deuteronomy 24, Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Understand what these things say. And uh, I'm thankful that the Lord has opened my eyes to these things to see what the truth is about these situations. And if you're one of those people who's going to say, well, I know of testimony after testimony, testimony of people who have divorced their second spouse and go back to their first spouse and the reconciliation, you, know, you don't decide doctrine by experience. You don't decide doctrine by testimony. You know, if, if you know, 500 people came to me and said, I have testimony that uh, Jesus is living right now in uh, Romania. He's walking around healing people. I wouldn't believe them. I wouldn't believe them. Um, I can give you testimonies that when people who have been divorced, for biblical reasons, and gotten remarried as Christians, they're godly people. They're living for God. And you won't ever convince me that they're deceived. And not just because I know them, but because I know what the scriptures say on this topic. What I've just given you. So I pray that this teaching has been a blessing to you. and has helped you understand these things a little better. Uh, I've been wanting this teaching for quite some time now. I just haven't had time to, but I just need to do this. And so I pray that you have your eyes open and you see the truth. God bless.